Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. This week on the show, reporter Michelle Rendells and I chat about what's going on in the state when it comes to COVID-19. From prisons to the Capitol to the sewer system, we cover the wide impact the disease is having on the state. Later, you call up Dr. Mark Pandori, the director of the Nevada State Public Health Lab, to talk about how the health lab is developing its own collection kits for testing as supplies in the U.S. dwindle. And at the end of the episode, you, me, editor John Ralston, and fellow podcaster Phil Corbett talk about our new favorite show to pass the time during quarantine, Tiger King. But first, let's give you an update on where things are regarding the coronavirus here in Nevada. The number of confirmed coronavirus cases continue to surge with each passing day, and so far there is no sign of things letting up. As of recording this podcast on April 2nd, there are 1,458 cases statewide and 38 people have died. Those numbers will have increased by the time you're hearing this. As those cases spike, state and local officials continue to scramble to contain and address the rippling effects of those cases. On Wednesday, Governor Steve Sisolak moved to strengthen the state's stay-at-home order and activated the National Guard. And on Thursday, Reno Mayor Hillary Sheevy asked every resident to start wearing a cloth mask if they venture outside. Strains on the state's healthcare system are beginning to become more clear. Even as hundreds of thousands of masks, gowns, and other personal protective equipment have been donated by casino magnets and the state's coronavirus task force, budget shortfalls in Las Vegas led to the Clark County manager to suspend collective bargaining agreements, including for workers at UMC Medical Center. The Service Employees International Union, which represents many of those workers, is now threatening to sue over that suspension. They say the move not only violates the contractual rights of workers, but it could violate the Constitution, too. As always, that's only part of what happened this week. Former Governor Brian Sandoval left a job at MGM to put his name into the race to be UNR's next president, while on the economic front, the number of jobless claims in the state spiked by more than 71,000. For our complete coverage of the coronavirus, including a live blog covering all the most recent developments, and a thorough resource guide if you've been impacted by the pandemic, head to thenevadaindependent.com. All right, and so I am here with reporter and editor Michelle Rendells. Michelle, how's it going? Good. How are you doing, Joey? I'm good. You're you're stuck in your house down in Carson City, and I'm stuck in my house up here in Reno. <laughs> Social right. distancing and being good about Staying all that. For Nevada here. That's, that's right. Um, and so you've been covering a lot of what's going on. We all have. We've all been covering a ton. And, and yesterday, the governor had a press conference, and you've been doing some work on prisons, and the interns have been working on things like water reclamation and, 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 and evictions, and you kind of run the internship program, so you know a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, this is just kind of going to kind of be a, uh, what's going on with coronavirus in the state right now? Do you want to start with, I think people are really concerned about evictions and stuff. Yeah, Joey. So obviously we're here at the beginning of April and rent is due at the first of the month for a lot of people. 45% of Nevadans, Nevada households are renter households. So this is going to affect, you know, 50%, almost 50% of the homes in Nevada. Governor Sisolak announced on Sunday that he was putting a moratorium on evictions for the duration of the state of emergency that Nevada is in. So this applies to residential and commercial businesses, which was a big deal, not only for the individuals that are struggling to pay rent, uh, whether because they lost their job, maybe they haven't gotten unemployment benefits coming in, maybe they don't think they're eligible for unemployment, whatever, many number of reasons um, people are struggling economically. Um, 
this gives them a bit of relief from having to worry about it being evicted and really being out on the streets at probably the worst time to be out on the streets, which is when this virus is raging. So it's also good for businesses. As you know, Joey, we've been interviewing businesses and business owners and employees for our series called Nevada Interrupted, how this pandemic is really disrupting those businesses. For a lot of them, they were really worried about losing their business site. They have no money coming in right now. Um, I think the featured uh, salon owner we had today said she was really relieved to not have to worry about being evicted in the coming month or so while she has no income coming in. Yeah. And I mean, we, we also talked to Imbibe, a brewery here in Reno and, and also a, a gym. And we've talked to, we've talked to uh, some substitute teachers and, you know, all of these people, I think that's, that's kind of one of the biggest things that they've talked about is rent. When it comes to a business owner, it's paying employees and rent are always the two things that they bring up. And then if it's just, if someone like the substitute teacher, he was really concerned about just, you know, his income in general and rent, so. Yeah, and, um, you know, Governor Sisolak has urged people to work out a repayment plan with their landlord uh, because this is not rent forgiveness. This is not completely skipping over the basically debt that's accumulating here, but it is deferring it. So I think one of the open questions that we have is what's going to happen the day this emergency declaration is lifted? Is the rent all going to come due on that day from certain landlords? I asked Governor Sistelak about this yesterday, you know, what happens on that day? Um, And he said, you know, he can't quite think about that point yet. So I don't think there's a really clear answer. Um, Mm -hmm. So what happens with that? People are being urged to talk to their landlords, you know, coordinate with them. But I think with so many different landlords, who knows really what's going to happen or even when that emergency declaration is going to be lifted. Yeah, yeah. And and he did have this press conference yesterday in the Capitol. And, you know, he talked about a lot of things. One of them was that. But he also talked about, you know, kind of getting the National Guard involved a little bit more and then then also um, extending the the moratorium closing of business, not essential businesses to the end of the month. Um, So what else did he say during that press conference? Well, he did highlight that he had extended uh, this closure of non-essential businesses. It was pretty much set to end on the 16th of April. It's now not set to expire um, until really the end of the month of April. I asked him, you know, is that something that the medical experts have said May 1st coronavirus is going to be eradicated or, you know, I mean, (laughs) is everything going to be okay at this point? Um, He didn't quite directly answer that, but I think the answer is that, you know, this is, the timeline is really based on the trajectory of the virus and are we able to flatten the curve? And we can put a date on that and say April 30th, um, but at the end of the day, we really don't know where we're going to be at that point. Um, I think Megan Messerly did a really interesting article about this this week where she kind of charted um, what some experts project might be the peak for Nevada for the virus. Um, Currently, I think the projection is sort of about three weeks out, um, kind of toward the later end of April, that things are really going to really get bad before they can get good again. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, we don't know. You know, there's a lot of projections out there. We don't know who's accurate. These are just projections. But we'll have to see where we're at at April 30th. Is it going to have to extend further beyond that? Uh, That could very well be a possibility. Yeah, yeah. And then a lot of businesses are talking about like, you know, there'll be six weeks at that point that they had have no business. And, you know, how long can you survive without having an income? Um, and so, and so, you know, there's the national, the national relief and stuff is coming. And I think a lot of that stuff is still trying to be worked out. 
Um, but a lot of people I think are in limbo right now and kind of trying to figure out what the future of their business, their family, their living situation looks like. But, but another thing that he, that governor Sisolak brought up was the national guard. Um, <laughs> I think I saw someone on Twitter say like martial law, obviously that's not happening. There's no martial law happening, but, but what is the national guard's involvement right now? They talked a lot about the national guard being experts in logistics and getting communication kind of being a central hub for things and being able to get supplies to where it's needed most. I think we're still trying to figure out exactly um, what that's going to look like on a day-to-day basis, but I think they're going to be kind of stewards of sort of some of the equipment that we get, whether maybe that's, you know, this personal protective equipment that is like gold right now and getting that to the right places, to the hospitals that need it, really coordinating where the hot spots are and where the greatest need is. You know, I think <laughs> the military has sort of that top-down, you know, approach. So a clear chain of command and who's in charge. So I think they're hoping to bring sort of that element of structure to really what is a patchwork of responses that includes private hospitals and nonprofits and all sorts of government agencies. So I think they're hoping to bring some leadership and some clear um, authority into this and, and really kind of activate these people that are really volunteers, they're, they're reserve, in the reserves, in the guard, and just really bringing them into action so they can help folks as needed. And um, we, we did have another story that I thought was really interesting yesterday by Shannon Miller um, about water reclamation and kind of the problems that's going on with plumbing and sewer sewage systems in the state. It's not something we normally think about when we think about pandemics, but what's going on there? Well, Joey, as probably most of our listeners are experiencing, it's hard to find toilet paper these days. It's been hard for approximately the last month. Um, unfortunately, what's happening is people are resorting to alternate methods, including uh, these uh, wipes, you know, Cottonelle wipes or whatever, you know. Or even Kleenex, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the problem is those wipes don't dissolve like toilet paper does. They last for years and years in their current form and they're really messing up the plumbing. Um, so Shannon Miller, our intern, talked to the Clark County water reclamation folks and they say, please help us out. We're having to manually clean wipes out of the pipes and people think these things are flushable, but it's sort of a marketing technique that, that has kind of been the source of um, potential like litigation, um, that they're marketing them as flushable when they're really getting stuck in the pipes. So I think that was a, a big public service announcement to folks that you're really not supposed to flush these things, um, or you're gonna back up your pipes, you're gonna back up maybe your neighbor's pipes, um, and really kind of put the, the folks at the, the water reclamation district that are trying to keep things running, you're making them work overtime. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't want, that's something you definitely don't want failing at a time like this when everyone's home is the sewage system. Exactly. Um, and then, and then finally you, you've been working on this story for a little while on, on prisons and kind of the effect that the coronavirus has had on, on prisons. And you want to explain to me what the story is. So about a week ago, the Nevada prisons announced their first positive case of COVID-19. This was among a correctional officer based at High Desert State Prison, which is north of Las Vegas. To this day, I have had a bit of trouble getting straight answers on what's been happening since that positive case. I mean, are other people quarantined? Are, are, is everybody on lockdown? 
do we have enough staff at High Desert State Prison or any of the other places really that have the capability to handle a serious case of COVID-19 among their, their population? Um, those answers have not been uh, very forthcoming to date, but the ACLU and some of the other groups that are aligned with them have asked the governor to take a series of steps to really drastically reduce the prison population and, and the population of jails as a way to prevent the spread of the virus. Um, you know, should a correctional officer that comes in and out every day to work um, have contact with someone who's positive, bring it in without knowing, you know, potentially prisoners and inmates are sitting ducks. They don't have places where they can kind of retreat due to capacity issues. Sometimes uh, folks are double bunked and it's just not very easy to isolate mass numbers of people in these prisons. So the ACLU wants people that are close to their, uh, their release date to be released early. This has happened in certain other jurisdictions. They also want medically fragile people that are within two years of their uh, release date to be uh, let go. And uh, they just want certain other measures at the local level to prevent more people from coming into the jails. Mm -hmm. um, I've also been talking to some parents who have children that are incarcerated, who are really, frankly, terrified of something happening to their children. Um, the people that I've spoken to have kids with, with underlying conditions, ranging from diabetes, it's very severe, to diverticulitis, which is sort of a digestive issue. And they're not confident that um, the medical staff at any of those institutions is really, um, you know, capable of handling not only those medical issues they already have, but all the complications that could come if there is an outbreak in the prison. So I think the concern here is it's not just can you snap your fingers and can let all, you know, the prisoners free. There's so many considerations that go into this, including do these folks have a place to go? Some of them do have families that have a place for them. Others have lost connection with their families. Um, so you can't just let everybody out. And then, of course, there's already an issue with homelessness and what are we going to do with um, the homeless population, especially if there's an outbreak among a, a wide, a large number of people who are homeless. Where where do they stay? They can't just yeah. isolate in their home. They don't have a home. So um, I think there's a lot of considerations. I asked the governor, have you gotten any closer to making a decision on weathering, whether you're going to commute the sentences of a lot of these folks? Uh, as of Wednesday, no, he hadn't come to a decision on that. He said he's talking with the Chief Justice of the Nevada Supreme Court um, about the considerations that go into this. So hopefully we'll get some more clearer answers on this in the coming days. All right. Well, Michelle, I'm, I know we have all got a lot of reporting to get back to. There's constant news every minute. Um, if you want to follow the minute to minute news, we have a live blog that we, we make a new one every week and it's got all of the statistics and graphs at the top of it. And then, uh, you know, minute to minute news underneath it. And make sure to follow that and uh, follow all of our reporting as we, uh, we all get through this together. We've got at least another month of this, but um, you know, hopefully we, we can get through this healthy, stay positive, enjoy your time with your families or your alone time, depending on where you are. So thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Joey. So I'm here with Dr. Mark Pandori from the Nevada Public Health Laboratory. And you guys are now developing um, testing kits, or not testing kits, collection kits, actually. What, what, the, the thing you use to collect the virus. 
um, from people. There's kind of two components to that that I think people don't realize. Can you kind of explain to me the difference between those two kits and then also kind of the process of developing the collection kit? Yeah, so we can not only, so that applied to testing kits for laboratories, but the other component to getting a test run is you need to collect a specimen. And those are, that's done by what are called collection kits. And there's no collection kits available in the United States. So what we decided to do at the Nevada State Public Health Lab is to construct collection kits. And um, we are constructing about 1,000 a day. It's not super fast because we have to do quality control on them. And once we do quality control, if the kits look like they're clean and effective, then we distribute them to anybody that runs a healthcare operation in Nevada that needs test collection kits. Okay. And can you kind of explain to me the difference between the collection kit and the, and the testing kit that you use in the lab? Uh, the uh, collection kit is a tube that has fluid in it that um, like in some preservatives and stuff and then it and then a swab so a collection kit is a swab and a collection tube so with the collection kit a clinician you know a nurse or a doctor can swab your throat or your nose or whatever and then take that swab and put it into a tube and seal it and then that tube goes to the lab right for transport and testing um, the test kit in the lab, that's like a bunch of chemical components that are specific to the detection of COVID-19 virus or SARS-CoV-2. Okay. And so that's the distinction that we make. The lab has test kits that we run in the lab. Collection kits just are swabs and tubes to transfer specimens to labs to be tested by test kits. A lot of politicians out there talking about problems with inventory conflate test kits with collection kits, and they call collection kits test kits. But lab people and medical people don't think that way. We, we, know, we call one a collection kit and one a test kit, the test kit being what's used to do the actual testing. The collection kit is just collecting a specimen that would be tested. Okay. And, and, and um, you don't have a shortage of testing kits then. You just have a shortage of collection kits, or we do in the nation. Right. Well, because of the regulatory change that the FDA made that we talked about in the first part of the call, mm-hmm. we've been able to evaluate some other brands of testing kit components here in the lab, and we have found some that work really well. So we're not too worried anymore right now about test kits in the lab. Um, where the the shortages nationally is in collection kits. And um, the collection kits, uh, in order to quell that, we manufacture our own collection kits here at the Nevada State Public Health Lab, and we distribute them from here. Okay. And are you delivering them to the Southern Nevada Lab and then also the private labs? Uh, well, we're, we haven't fielded any any requests from private labs yet, but we have, uh, we are shipping some to Southern Nevada and to many, many clinics around Nevada and health and hospitals around Nevada. Do you know of any other states that are making collection kits? 
No, I'm unaware of any other effort to do this. We had the idea several weeks ago and started assembling the components to do this. Um, and then about a week and a half after we got the idea to do it and started doing it, I, I did notice the CDC uh, sending the ingredients out and sending information to labs that they could build their own kits. Um, so that information is out there. I think we had a head start. Um, and um, we also have our School of Medicine here. One of the cool things about being on a School of Medicine campus is I've got people here now in the Microbiology Division and Biology Campus here at UNR that are helping to build collection kit. Okay. And, and and is it is it is it a pretty complicated process to make these collection kits, or is it a is it a pretty smooth and easy process to make these? Um, good question. So um, it's easy to build a collection kit. Uh, to build one or two collection kits. The difficult parts are as follows. Um, number one, the caps, you know, have to be put on all the tubes, and that's a thousand. And people get repetitive motion injury pretty quickly. So, you know, you have to share that task and get the kits physically assembled with using a lot of different people, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And then... Um, the other thing is that we need to perform quality control on these kits when they've been completed. Quality control means we need to establish three things about them. Number one, we test samples of the kits that we build for sterility. So we, we take the kit that we build and we swab it to make sure that there's no microorganisms growing in there that we don't want. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. It's sterile. Number two, we test all the fluid in the kits to make sure there's no contamination of COVID-19 virus DNA or RNA in them. And then the third thing we do is we spike the samples that we samples of the lots that we make. We spike them with uh, positive COVID-19 samples and then test those samples to see if they retain stability of samples so that we so that if they're used for sample collection, we can we know that they're not digesting or degrading the specimens okay. over a three-day period. So we those are the three things we establish: is that they maintain specimen stability, and that they aren't contaminated ahead of time. And number three, that they're not um, full of bacteria and junk. All right, and so that was a short uh, excerpt from a longer interview I did with Dr. Mark Pandori um, from the Nevada State Public Health Lab. And if you want to hear the full interview, you can check out the Q&A that we have on our website, uh, thenevadaindependent.com. So we've gotten to the last segment of the podcast where we like to talk about something fun. Um, and we've all been dealing with a lot of this coronavirus stuff and it feels a little hard to escape the world. Um, but luckily, uh, there is a show on Netflix called Tiger King. And it, it definitely makes me feel like I'm living in a very uh, normal time compared to the, the people in this show. Um, so to talk about it, I'm here. I'm joined with uh, editor John Ralston. Hi, Joey. And co-host and reporter Jacob Solis. How you doing, Joey? And a friend, uh, Phil Corbett. Phil, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. And Phil runs his own podcast called Van Sounds. And the reason we have him on is because, Phil, uh, in 2016, you interviewed one of the main, uh, main people in Tiger King, Joe Exotic. Yeah, the Tiger King himself. 
Um, so we've all watched the show, and, and I, I don't know, can I just get your takes on, on what you thought of it? We'll, we'll start with John. Um, well, I mean, it, it gets progressively uh, weirder and weirder as you go along, I think. I mean, the first, I, I mean, the first three episodes, I remember turning to my girlfriend like eight different times in every episode and just shaking my head saying, you know, essentially my look is this can't really be real. And then by the end of it, you realize that there's this whole world out there uh, that, that, that nobody knows that much about, right? With all these weird people. Like you think Joe Exotic's weird. Then, 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 then you think that uh, Carol Baskin's weird. And then there's the other uh, folks involved. And then there's the Vegas connection where all con men sooner or later show up right and so uh, the whole thing is just totally bizarre and i i was constantly surprised i don't know if you guys were about the kind of access they got to all of these people to to to, to, to not be seen at their best and and the egos on all of these people to not care about that and to think that they're coming across well and nobody in this thing literally nobody in this thing comes across well jacob what do you think yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. That uh, honestly, the every episode somehow you think that you have adjusted yourself to you're, you've adjusted your barometer to the uh, standard level of craziness that Tiger King provides, and then somehow it ratchets it up, ratchets it up, ratchets it up every time. And by the end of the show, it's it's almost strange how much of like a profound human tragedy you get at, through all of this that you watch these people doing very strange things for very strange reasons. And then, I, I don't know, you're sort of like left with this feeling of emptiness. Uh, I was not hopeful at all about anything, about the big cats, about the people involved, about anything by the time the show is finished. And then, Phil, what about you? Yeah, profound human tragedy is a really good way to put it. Um, I do think some of Joe Exotic's employees come across likable. Um, there are like a couple people that you're at least kind of rooting for. Um, but yeah, throughout the whole thing, you're just constantly seeing these people make terrible decisions over and over and over again. And then it just goes to a little vignette of another person making a worse decision than the last one. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. I think the one thing for me, I thought by the end, I was exhausted. It's seven episodes. And by the end, I was just like, I feel like I had been like beaten down by this show, you know. <laughs> I, I feel like five episodes would have been easier for me to watch. Not that it needed to be shorter, because there's so so much content there. But by the end, I was just absolutely exhausted by the strangeness of everybody. Everyone makes really weird decisions and very. I mean, it's all passion driven, right? Everyone is so passionate about things maybe they shouldn't be passionate about, like wanting to kill each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but yeah you know you know I, it was a fascinating show through and through and and then phil you did you when you watched the show did you also get this feeling when you interviewed joe exotic in 2016 i guess we should preface that he ran for president in 2016 <laughs> yeah yeah so i kind of i went into it sort of rooting for him already um kind of the way you root for anybody you've like talked to on the phone or met a couple times and was generally nice um, so it was definitely, I think the emotional roller coaster was turned up a little bit for me since I had talked to him. I mean, it was definitely consistent. Like in the interview, he was a little bit more co like he was coherent for the whole interview and very, to me, like relatable and likable. And I agreed with 
most of the stuff he said in the interview. Uh, he definitely came off, you know, like pretty wacky. Um, I think that was kind of his whole campaign in the first place was, you know, pretty wild and he knew it. Um, so then watching him in the show, not at his best, not answering questions like as well as he did in the interview that I had with him, it was kind of like, oh yeah, there's like, there's a whole dark underbelly to not only Joe, but this entire world. John, what do you think? Joey, Joey, let me just say a couple things. Um, first, first of all, jo- Joe Exotic is just a, a kind of, uh, you know, he's a flamboyant, performance artist, con man. And of course, eventually the, 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 the natural last step for him beside, before hiring a hit, hit man to kill his rival is to run for president, right? That's what they do. That, I mean, politics is a natural milieu for someone who's a professional con man, right? To think that they can do the ultimate con and become a, a elected president. There's been so many like him. He's a particularly flamboyant example of it. The other thing I just wanted to clarify, I, I totally agree with Phil that some of those um, uh, employees are very sympathetic and actually seem like good people. When I said there were no sympathetic characters, I meant of the main characters. Uh, sure, yeah. But finally, let me just say, it's interesting that Jacob and Phil's talked about the profound human tragedy. There's no profound human tragedy here. <laughs> what there is, and what made me feel really guilty by the end, <clears throat> is I had thought very little about how mistreated these animals were. Right, that's the tragedy of this whole thing. Uh, And that's what made me feel sad toward the end uh, when it got a little bit more somber and talked about the treatment of animals and and all the rest of it. These animals were not happy. They are not happy. And they're probably not even happy in like what Carol Baskin describes as this boundless world that she's that, that, that she's created. They don't want to be in cages, right? Uh, maybe no animals do, but especially animals that run around in the wild uh, like, like, like these big cats. So that, if there's any tragedy, I don't feel sorry for Joe Exotic or Carol Baskin or, or the other two idiots in, 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 in this thing. I feel sorry for the animals. So I should clarify, I don't feel bad for Joe Exotic either. Um, I feel bad for everyone in his orbit because what it seems to be as a show is like a show about abusers. And for every abuser, there's like 10 to 15 uh, abusees, people who are being tormented mentally uh, and emotionally by these people. A lot of collateral that, damage. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Jay. Exactly. And that's what I think is the tragedy is that that these people have been sucked into these wild personality, personalities like Joe Exotic and they can't get out. And you're sort of like every time you see Joe Exotic or, or Carol Baskin do something absurd, there, you're always beat over the head by like, well, someone else is suffering because of this decision or because of their behavior. or And it just, it's, it's a spiral downward. Every single episode gets worse. And I actually think one of my criticisms of the show is that it doesn't really focus on the animals at, except for the beginning and at the end. At all, yeah. Yeah. And I, I wish it had done more to make you feel like the they were a centerpiece of this because they were also part of this cycle of abuse. And I don't think that was really focused on like it should have been in a show called literally Tiger King. I actually think they did that on purpose. So it's not to distract from the human drama and, and these wackos and, 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 and all the rest, whether or not that that's, that's a legitimate choice or not, I think is a good subject for debate because I, like I said, by the end, I suddenly felt guilty that like I hadn't thought about the animals that much and how they were treated. I was just taken in by, by, by the sensationalism of it all. Yeah. I mean, I definitely found myself thinking like what, like why not just 
outlaw all of this? Like, why not, like, including Carol Baskin's place, just, like, why do these places exist at all? Like, who are they serving? And do they really, you know, serve the purpose that they claim, which is that if you take a selfie with a tiger and put it on Tinder, you're more likely to, you know, care about the rainforest. I I don't know if I buy that. And that is like the complete, that's the linchpin for like the whole justification of this. Um, yeah. So that's where I, I left was just thinking like, I don't know, this might not be necessary at all. I, I actually, I agree. I think, I think you're right. <laughs> at least that's how I felt at the end as well. And I wanted to say that like, there's a great scene in the episode that ties back to Nevada. Well, a lot of it ties back to Nevada a little bit, but the, 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 Oh, we lost Jacob. Um, but, uh, the, the, the best scene I think was just the picture of Dina Titus holding the tiger just really cracked me up. Yeah. I was shocked to see, to see that. And, uh, in the context of it, she'd been very active her entire career on animal rights issues, including when she was in the Nevada legislature. And I don't know if you saw it or not, but she actually tweeted about Tiger King. I think it was yesterday. Uh, I think I, and 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 said that I haven't seen it, but I've been an animal rights activist my entire career, and I still believe in it. We need to take better care of animals, or something like that. So once she, she saw what a sensation it was, she used it to push one of her pet issues, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, in the, in the picture of her with holding a baby tiger, and how they talk about how that's you know so bad and stigmatized now um exactly. obviously maybe maybe she didn't know that back then i'm not sure if she did or not but it was a it was a pretty funny scene and then of course the i feel like who came off as the biggest villain in this i don't know they were all villains but the one guy from vegas was just the most stereotypical like scumbag from vegas in my eyes and i thought it was such a <laughs> such a funny and perfect tie-in to the state i agree with you i just did there's always some kind of tie to Vegas, right? When there's when they're talking about something sleazy or awful, you know. And and so uh, I shouldn't have been that surprised that, that there would be would be one player from Vegas, and that they would have tried to set up something here, of course. Uh, and 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 so yeah, that 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 was an interesting sidelight. Phil, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your interview with with Joe Exotic because he also ran for governor of um uh where was he from? Oklahoma. But did you, did he talk to you about um, about running for governor? And then did, did you feel like he had like a legitimate chance at any point? And maybe not obviously for the presidency, but but do you think that like if he was to run and the show had not have happened, he would have had a chance? So that's a good question. I mean, you know, yeah, this was it was two years before he ran for governor. And like even at the end of our interview, he said something like, you know, I'm smart enough to know that I'm not going to win the presidency but you're gonna see me in four more years is what he said so i think hey i mean that was as my dad said like pretty prophetic in a different way but i think like it was clear that he saw this as a possible career move that he could start doing politics um i would say so when i was editing the episode my roommates overheard it and they were like hey can we listen to that and so i showed it to them and they were just like I agree with a shocking amount of what he said in this interview. So I think there is like, I mean, I don't know. There's more bizarre things. Like we do have a reality show host for a president right now. Like it's not that far fetched. Um, That said, I don't know if he's like, you know, if Joe was ever put together enough or driven enough to win like that high of an office. 
but I don't know. He could have, he could have won something. I think like people, he resonated with some people clearly. I think actually the point that Phil's making is right on uh, Joey in the sense that there's, there's no comparison between Trump and, and Joe Exotic in, a, in, a, in kind of a micro way, but in a macro way, someone who just says irreverent things, talks different than the usual politician, you know, says things that, that resonate with, with ordinary people who don't follow this stuff like crazy people like my like me do 24-7 and, and say we need someone different, we got to throw the bums out, Washington's broken, all that kind of stuff. And people who have, have seen all the dysfunction of government over the years, someone like that does resonate in, a, in, a, in the same way that Trump does, but on a much uh, lower and less skilled level than Trump is. Well, any closing thoughts on uh, on Tiger King, or should we just leave it at that? I'm just hoping there's a sequel. <laughs> I think there is. I think I think Netflix announced they are going to do a season. I don't know how they're going to do oh, a season wow. two. I think it's kind of lame, actually. But you know, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I guess Joe Exotic like filed an appeal and uh, is trying to push a lawsuit. And I, I've heard that you know the drama is not over. So well, and there's a lot of other people that they talked about bringing down. And I posted Joey. I don't know if you saw it. Phil certainly uh, probably Phil didn't see where I posted it on our internal channel. Carol Baskin has written this multi-thousand-word rebuttal to the entire <laughs> series uh, uh, that, that is really something to read. <laughs> well, well, uh, we'll have to check that out and make sure also to listen to Phil's interview with uh, with Joe Exotic on his on his podcast Van Sounds. And also, Phil, you your band did the music for our podcast, so I thought I should just bring that up. People with Bodies did the theme song for this very show, so uh, you know we appreciate yeah, we appreciate right. all of your stuff. So, all right, well, Phil, thanks for chatting with me. John, thanks for chatting with me, and Jacob, thank you also for chatting. All right, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Dr. Mark Pandori, Michelle Rendells, John Ralston, and Phil Corbett for being on the pod this week. If you want to hear Phil's full interview with Joe Exotic, you can do so by listening to his podcast, Van Sounds. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more, you can do so by searching for Indie Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen. If you'd like to donate to us, you can find the Support Our Work page on the NevadaIndependent.com. We'd greatly appreciate anything you can afford to give during these trying times. And if you want minute-to-minute updates on the situation regarding the coronavirus in this state, you can check it out on our website. If you have comments, criticism, or praise, you can email me at joey at or jacob at jacob at And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, email editors at thenvnd.com. Phil's band People With Bodies does our theme music, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And we'll talk to you next week.